Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Philosophy for Our Times. Facts of assertions. From the Institute of Art and Ideas. We examine every aspect of contemporary thinking. What is love? Is it real? Is democracy illusory and incoherent? Finding cracks in the way we understand the world. I think there is a crisis of values. Realism has failed. We debate the way forward with today's leading thinkers. We're all trying to understand what the hell is going on. A live podcast production from the Institute of Art and Ideas. Remember this? I'm afraid because of a Conservative candidate, but he's now a GP. He says, Calm, calm down, dear. Calm down. Calm down. Listen. Listen to the doctor. That's the former Prime Minister, David Cameron, telling Labour MP Angela Eagle to calm down, dear, during Prime Minister's question time. In this episode, Angela Eagle will be answering the question, does Westminster still have a problem with women? I'm Angela Eagle. I'm number 164. And that means that I'm the 164th woman in the entire history of our entire parliament ever to be elected to it. When I came into parliament, there were 60 out of 650 MPs who were women, and that was by far the largest percentage that we'd ever had, and that was in 1992. Many of you will know, obviously, that women weren't given the vote until... 1918, and even then the franchise was not equal, it was women over 30. Women were then uh, immediately given the right to stand, because they actually got the right to vote before they got the right to stand for Parliament. But we had, by then, a Parliament and a system that had developed over many years in the complete absence of women. And so everything that we've tried to do and everything that has happened since then I think has got to be seen in that context that we arrived late and we arrived in tiny numbers to begin with. In an institution that is very, um, I'm not trying to be nasty to it, but it's very self-regarding about its own rightness and the way that it does things. So changing it is actually quite difficult. The first election in 1918, I think there were about 1,600 candidates and 17 of them were women and only one won and she was banged up in Holloway prison because it was Countess Markovitz. She didn't campaign, she was in jail and she stood for Sinn Féin and never took her seat. Now we've made some progress. I mean in the 1945 Great Landslide, 24 out of 650 MPs or women. There was quite a good crop. Ellen Wilkinson and Barbara Castle were my two particular heroines from that era, and there were others. But they were very, very minority. As I said, in 1992, when I came in, 60. And this was a huge breakthrough moment, under 10%. I remember once we went out for a meal, a few of us, 
and we came walking back for the vote across the lobby, the members' lobby, in about a phalanx of about 10 women because we'd been out to have a meal. And everybody thought that we'd all been plotting and that it was a disaster. I thought it showed more about how men organise and think than actually it showed about us, but we quite enjoyed it. The sort of uncertainty that that, that kind of thing caused. And so quite often then after that we would secretly organise and do a mass attack on the smoking room and things like that. And you'd go in and they'd look round and say, uh, what's going on? What's happening? And it's like, well, welcome to our world, because we spend all of our time massively outnumbered by all of you. Now, obviously things got better with the Labour landslide in 1997. We went up, we doubled to 120. And you might think that since then everything has got way, way better. And you might like to know that in 2015, 191 of us are women. And that's the highest it's ever been 29% of the total. And I have to say that 68 of those are Tories, and that's 21% of their parliamentary party. Uh, we're on 99 in the Labour Party, and that's 43% of our party. And uh, 24 are other, which are mainly SNP uh, these days. The Greens have the distinction of having 100% of their parliamentary party <laughs> being women. It obviously, when you have a few more, it gets a bit harder to keep up those figures. So we also need to think about not only numbers, but how politics is organised and how the structures you find yourself in, in Parliament and in politics more generally, mitigate against women wanting to get involved or staying involved. It's hard. You're like a square peg in a round hole. Some of us enjoy that, and some of us have learned to live with it, but it's never totally comfortable, and it's always like you're there. I wouldn't say under sufferance, but it's, you know, it's, it's a bit other. I think little has changed in the way that politics are organised with women coming in afterwards, and certainly that's the case in Parliament itself and how it's organised. Campaigns and the way that major political parties organise their campaigns as uh, very male-dominated as well and, and sees little place for women. And, of course, the way that the media reports politics is also particularly mitigates against the other, which is us. And I think because women arrived so late on the scene, various things had been established in our parliament that's very difficult to change and I think is a very male way of doing things. Firstly, the system's adversarial. A lot of women are put off by adversarial systems. I think the only really two parts of our life in this country that are still adversarial are the courts and our parliament, at least on the floor of the House of Commons. Not all the politics that's done in the House of Commons is adversarial. The select committee systems tend to be much more consensus-based. But actually on the floor of the House, and particularly Prime Minister's questions and things like that, is very, very adversarial. And it's not something that I think women watching or women trying to participate identify with very easily. In fact, a lot of the women MPs that I've known come in after me have been very shocked by the nature of that. They think it's name-calling and silly and get embarrassed by it. However, if you're in it, you have to work within the confines of it or it's very difficult to make points or make yourself heard. So it's a question of how you can evolve it into something different whilst being in it, this perennial issue of whether you can reform from within. I think concepts of leadership are male as well. 
tough leader, strong, sort of demonstrating, forcing the whole party to do what he wants. All those concepts of leadership are very, very male, and they don't really take account of the way that women tend to lead. And in fact, the role models for women leading in politics are very few and far between. There's Mrs Thatcher, obviously. I'm not sure she led like a woman. I think she, she was the best man amongst the Tory party when she led them. But it's quite hard to think of a model that you can use. Angela Merkel is obviously the most powerful probably European politician at the moment, and she has a very different leadership style, I think, to most of the implicit views of leadership that you get from reading the media. And I think the discourse that we have and the way that the media interview politicians is also the same. It's very adversarial. And I think that whenever there's a general election, it's almost as if a trapdoor opens up beneath the chair of every woman in politics, and we just disappear. I mean, I've now fought six general elections, and in every single one of them, the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, and the Leader of the Opposition and the Shadow Chancellor have been men, in every single one. And they, they are the ones that tend to dominate. And then those of you uh, involved, if you're involved in party politics, perhaps will know that those that do the campaigning are men as well. The people that run the campaigns behind the scenes and decide what to do are almost always men. And so they naturally think about male things and they don't think about women. We started off in the Labour Party saying to say we have to have at least one woman on every platform at the press conference. So we'd have one woman on every platform at the press conference and they'd never be asked a question by the journalists who are there who naturally want to make their name by skewering the Prime Minister or the Chancellor or the Leader of the Opposition or the Shadow Chancellor and therefore getting their name in lights on a story that runs all through the day. So you sit there and you twiddle your thumbs and then you think, well, I could have been door knocking in Wallasey rather than doing that. It's how women get treated as well. You're judged on appearance much more in general than men. And you're, somehow you're not quite taken seriously. It's just something that happens. And there is the overt sexism. There has been overt sexism in the House of Commons. I'm fortunate enough not to have experienced very much of it. But has anyone read The Bastards by Teresa Gorman, who was that rare thing, a Tory feminist? You should read it. I mean, it's about her battle over the Maastricht Treaty. She became one of those outers before the outers were leave, who caused all sorts of horrors for John Major when he was Prime Minister in the 92 to 97 Parliament. And there were enough of them to always put the government's majority in doubt. And she recounts one occasion where she was sat on the government benches with a man either side who deliberately sat next to her and started discussing over her what she'd be like on her back, what she'd be like in bed, and told her that she should F off back to where she belonged. Now, she didn't name in the books who had done that because she said her lawyers wouldn't let her. Um, but that was done in the era of TV cameras in the chamber of the House of Commons. Now, I can't say that anything like that has ever happened to me, and I think I'd do a point of order about it if it did. But I have been told to calm down, dear. 
<laughs> by the Prime Minister. I mean, the interesting thing about that occasion was that I thought well, he's lost his rag. <laughs> ha! I've made him lose his rag. Uh, but the thing about it was that it showed him up far more. And it actually, it was two days before the royal wedding, and it was trending on Twitter higher than the royal wedding. And that's partially because it showed him up in a moment where he'd lost his rag, and it showed what he really thought. And that can be an advantage of the adversarial nature of politics, but it's one that is quite hard sometimes. A lot of the discourse about women in politics problematizes them. So now we've got people saying, well... Um, Working-class white men are being disenfranchised by the advance of feminism. We've seen that, haven't we? It's all over the place. Well, did any of you see that G7 photograph of all those women that control the world's largest economies in Japan? One, Angela Merkel. Feminism has gone too far again, obviously. But you see, I don't think that you should spend your time positing the interests of women against the interests of poorer men. We all advance together, and I think that when seldom heard voices or voices that aren't represented more directly are absent from the House of Commons, it makes it a less representative place, and it's up to all of us to try to get that representation more effective. And so I don't think it's right to say, well, the, there are now too many women and they're edging out working-class men. We've got to be able to ensure that working-class women's voices are heard, but also uh, seldom heard voices. And it's up to the political parties and the way that they select and choose their candidates to enable us to have a proper and better representation of our entire population. And I, for one, have always worked within the Labour Party to bring that about, not only for women, through the use of women-only shortlists, which I still advocate. Yes, I'm in favour of quotas. I think it works, and I think it's the only thing that is guaranteed to work. But you also have to do lots of work to make sure that other less represented groups can also find their place. Women don't do their politics like men do theirs. And it's taken me quite a long time to come to realise this, because when you're growing up in politics, you think, oh, it's all merit, you know, if you do a good job, somebody will see, they'll give you promotion, it'll all be fantastic, and you'll gradually make your way. But it doesn't work like that. Men organise in peer groups, people who are all in it to advance together. And what happens is if a man moves on or up, there's always a scrabble around for the person who's next in line to take that spot. It's like a gigantic male rubrics cube, um, but actually shaped like a pyramid. And so they manoeuvre like mad, in my experience now, to see who that is going to be. And they trade. They trade favours as well. If I do this for you, then I'll be the next person that's going to be around for this and I'll be the natural successor. And if you support me doing this, then I'll support you doing that. And it's like this is a complete alien way of doing things for most women. Most women 
just get on, do a good job and hope that somebody somewhere will recognise them. We're far more meritocratic, I think, maybe more naive, but we just don't fit into those male power structures which tend to be hierarchical, whereas women tend to be more cooperative. They support each other emotionally, but they don't support each other from a career point of view unless you actually establish an actual network. I've only come to realise this after many years watching it go on and being able to make some kind of sense of it. I remember when I was in the first parliament I served in the 1992 to 95 parliament, John Prescott helped to get me on a select committee after about four years. The time came and I was supported apparently by John Prescott to get on to the employment select committee. Time came for John to stand for deputy leader and I supported Margaret Beckett because, you know, I happen to think that women should be amongst leaders. You know, he didn't speak to me for three years because it's like, oh... I supported you to do that and you're not supporting me now and I didn't even realise that this unwritten contract existed and it was then that I discovered that this is the way that blokes do things. I think being a gay woman in politics probably even different again although coming back to John Prescott because I've said something a bit iffy about him and now I want to say something very nice about him When I came out, I was a minister in John's big Department of Transport, Environment and the Regions. And trying to get to see the Secretary of State when you're a junior minister with all the civil service surrounding him is very difficult. But I wanted to tell him I was going to do this. And so when I was trying to get to see him, they were going, well, what do you want to talk about? And I was saying, I just want to see him, I just want to talk. Um, None of your business, just can I have 15 minutes? They finally uh, did it and got me these 15 minutes. And when I told him, he went, tell me something I didn't know already, love. (laughs) Can I give you a kiss? Uh, And he did, and he was fantastic and very supportive and wonderful. But there's something else there as well with being gay. There are many, many things that when you're a gay woman, you don't pick up when you're surrounded by heterosexual men because you're just not tuned in to those signals. Can I put it that way? Before I saw and talked to John, I talked to Chris Smith. He was then in the Cabinet as well. He was the first out gay man in Parliament. We had a meal, and it took me all the way through to the coffee to tell him, and I'm sat there thinking, I haven't told him yet, we're on the coffee. I'll never get another meeting with him for months if I don't tell him now. You know, how can you just bring it up? And he was gobsmacked. And then I told Peter Mandelson, because I was expected to, and he was gobsmacked. All the gay men were gobsmacked. (laughs) And all the heterosexual blokes were, oh, yeah, we know, we know, don't worry about it. So there are these unwritten things in groups of people that make you the other, if I could put it that way, and make it a bit harder. But I think the important thing to say now is that things have got better, They're getting better gradually. And the women that are in Parliament have begun to try to make a change in very stubborn institutions which take a long time to change because they're very self-regarding and they think what they do is perfect already. 
But I never thought when I went into Parliament as one of 60 people in 1992 that we would have made the progress we've made already. The only way you make progress is by fighting for it. And the only way that you continue that fight is to keep making the issues, keep making the points, fight within your own political parties to make sure that the selection is good as well, fight to get more people involved, more women involved in politics so that our politics can be more representative. And I'm just going to use one example. When I first was around Parliament, the then Conservative government was wanting to make a list of things in the NHS that ought to be definitely always available. And it was trying to suggest that things that weren't on the list ought to be perhaps provided by insurance. So there would be a core series of things that the health service would always do. And they drew up a list. And it didn't include maternity, because <laughs> babies obviously just spontaneously <laughs> arise. Uh, it didn't include anything gynaecological at all, and nothing about birth control. How many women do you think were in that meeting drawing up that list? None. So the more we have women in decision-making places, be it in our civil service, be it in government, be it in our parliament, be it in our major economic companies, the players, in the public service, where they are able to make decisions that matter, the better society we will develop for all our people. And that's what anyone that wants to defeat the patriarchy, or, or the patriarchy if you want to say it that way, in our society has got to try to do. Thanks very much. We hope you enjoyed this podcast, brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. Let us know what you thought by tweeting at IAI underscore TV with the hashtag politics and the patriarchy. If you enjoyed this podcast, you can watch the talk in full on the IAI TV player. If you want to listen to more episodes, then subscribe to the Philosophy for Our Times podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Stitcher for more big ideas on the go. We always love to hear feedback, so please email us on podcast at iai.tv. Tune in to our next episode to hear a debate about whether our conscious or unconscious thoughts are in control. <laughs>